0: Hi, and welcome to more of a comment than a question. I'm Paul Connor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Smriti Mehta. Smriti, how are you today?
1: Hey, Paul. Um, I am good today. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, you know, it's the first, it was the first week today. Like this week has been the first um, full week of the semester. So things have been a little busy. I teach for the first time tomorrow. So I'm very excited about that. Um had, you know, have been looking at some doing some pre-registrations and, you know, working with some on some stuff. And so, yeah, it's been good. How about you?
0: Yeah, good, good. I'm a bit tired today. I stayed up till two thirty two thirty a.m. last night watching an Australian football game. Uh, yeah. And my team got beaten. So oh, I'm a bit, uh, about that, but, uh, today's my wedding anniversary. So as soon as we stop oh, yeah. recording, uh, I'm going to go pick up some nice Italian food and we're going to have some wine and have a, you know, a sheltering in place anniversary. anniversary.
1: How lovely. Well, happy anniversary to you and Shinome.
0: Thank you very much. Um, yeah. so what's, what's the podcast about today?
1: Oh yeah, so today we have a very special guest, um, another special guest, yeah, it's very exciting that people want to talk to us. <laughs> we're being joined by Alex, um, how do you say his last name? I say Coke. Coke, okay, yeah, Alex Coke, who's a professor of business, um, or behavioral um, sciences, so assistant professor of behavioral sciences at the Chicago um, Booth School of Business, um, and yeah, we're going to be talking to him about some exciting stuff related to his um Paper, this big paper on the ABC model, um, and some of his work like doing adversarial collaboration with um, Susan Fisk, Fisk, Susan Fisk, and the team.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to issue a couple of warnings. Um, hmm. So yeah, well, first I want to introduce um, my Shih Tzu Maltese. <laughs> dog rosie because she's gonna interrupt the podcast at one point she has massive beef with our neighbors so we have these (laughs) we sort of share this backspace of our apartment with some people and they have to go out to put their trash out whenever they do rosie interprets it as a massive threat um and so like barks her head off so that happens at a certain point of the podcast but i don't i don't think alex really like skipped a beat no, no. He no, was, kind of was totally professional. Um, but I wanted to see if I could get her to say hello. Hey Rosie. Speak. 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 Yeah, good girl.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> so, that took a lot That's longer gross. than it's going to seem. <laughs> <laughs> to your listeners, uh, but yeah, she, it was she finally worth it. spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, I guess I just wanted to warn people that Alex gets kind of very technical, very fast. So I wanted to give you some yeah. sort of orientation of what he's talking about. So, like, he wrote this paper in 2016 um, where he used this kind of innovative method for um, determining the spontaneous dimensions that people use to differentiate between social groups. So. The, there are some very like dominant popular models. The stereotype content model of Susan Fisk is sort of, I would say, maybe the dominant model in social mm-hmm. psychology. And it sort of suggests that people use a two, two main dimensions, warmth and competence, to um, differentiate between social groups. Um, yeah. What Alex did was he sort of came along and said, well... Um, a lot of this research that has decided that warmth and competence are the dominant dimensions has been quite Mm -hmm. top down. So researchers kind of decided that these should be the dominant dimensions and then just Mm -hmm. asked participants to rate groups on warmth and competence. Um, But they could be missing things or they could be sort Mm -hmm. of priming these dimensions by directly asking about them. And people might not necessarily rely on these dimensions exclusively or at all, even if we Mm -hmm. just let them spontaneously. So he came up with this clever method where you don't ask people to rate groups on specific dimensions. Rather, you just ask people how similar or different they think particular groups are. Mm-hmm. And based on those judgments of similarity and difference, you can sort of build a uh, a distance matrix between all these mm-hmm. different groups and sort of you can use that distance matrix to determine what the d- underlying dimensions are because groups will sort of – like score either high or low on these resulting dimensions. And then you can use those scores to sort of see well, what did they use? Did they use, did they use warmth? Did they use competence or did they use something else? So um, that's probably still a bit confusing, but hopefully it can orient people like a little bit to like this, (laughs) this sort of technical stuff that Alex uh, starts talking about when we start talking to him. And finally, just quickly um, I'm adding this later. Uh, you'll notice in in about the last half an hour of our conversation, the audio sort of changes. One of our audio files uh, stopped recording, Um, so we had to switch and rely on the Zoom audio file, which is uh, admittedly of lower quality. So, yeah, hopefully that doesn't detract too much from the conversation. Um, But, yeah, here is our interview with Alex Koch. Alex? Welcome to the podcast. Hi.
1: Yeah, thank you for joining us.
0: Good yeah. to be here. Good. Thanks for the
2: invite.
0: It's our pleasure. So I met you, I don't know, a, like a year ago, something like that. I, um, yeah. Basically what happened from my perspective was I was just looking at literature uh, related to what, the things that I study, social cognition, and I came across Uh, a jpsp paper that you had written um
2: and it's called uh what's it called the abc of stereotypes uh, about about social groups yeah Yeah, yeah
0: the abc of stereotypes about social groups and you know there's so many papers out there and you just read papers all the time and most of the time they're pretty like there's nothing surprising or that impressive about them and I to me this paper really stood out because it was one of those rare occasions where you read a paper and like I really enjoyed it and I got a lot out of it and I thought it was really clever and interesting um and innovative uh so yeah I reached out to you after that and just sort of introduced myself and said I thought your work was really interesting and I'd like to use similar methods and, and stuff like that but um Maybe, um, could you sort of explain a bit about that paper? Cause like, as we were talking about before, it was kind of sort of your breakthrough paper, um, a very important publication for you. And it had a lot of, um, a lot of the things that you've been thinking about and sort of working on in in it. Um, so maybe you could just sort of explain the general thrust of that paper and how you sort of came to, um, be putting those ideas together, and where that work has gone since then, for our listeners.
2: Okay, uh, yeah. Let's, so um, that's that's a great question. Um, I I had programmed an efficient method to collect um, similarity um, uh, ratings for lots of stimuli at the same time halfway through my PhD. And this method is called the spatial arrangement method. So what, what happens is, um, uh, people drag and drop, um, words or pictures back and forth on a, on a blank screen. And the only instruction is to place, uh, um, stimuli that they think are more similar closer together. Stimuli that are more dissimilar further apart. And I presented this, um, this method testing a, a, you know, different hypothesis than, than, the ones we ended up testing in the, in the ABC model paper. I, I presented this at a mini conference, um, near Cologne where, where I was doing my PhD at the time and somebody, um, somebody inspired the idea that this, this tool of, um, of collecting uh, similarity ratings efficiently uh, could be used uh, for data driven uh, uh, dimension identification so we were interested in this other line of uh, of research uh, how similar do people think uh, positive information stuff is compared to other positive information compared to the perceived similarity of, between negative stimuli basically. So we were interested in how closely together do people Spatially position, uh, positive people objects versus negative people objects. So, yes. so we were basically uh, interested in, 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 testing density hypotheses. But, you know, this colleague, Roland Imhoff, he suggested this tool actually could be used for, for data driven dimension identification. And that's like this different question of not how densely do people, uh, um, mentally represent uh, certain categories of, of stimuli but also like along which dimensions of of content you could say psychologically meaningful content to people uh, mentally represent stimuli and and he um, he had a project in mind um in which all sorts of occupations would be the stimuli, lots and lots of stimuli, you know, because that's important, representative stimulus uh, uh, sampling. And he um, wanted to see um, whether people would naturally, spontaneously uh, uh, arrange those those stimuli along the dimensions in in sort of standard models of, of social perception, social cognitions and and in particular, maybe um, the warmth and competence model by Susan Fiske and colleagues, which you know exists under different labels in personality psychology and you know gender psychology and whatnot, like for decades. And and he also wanted to see do people use other dimensions spontaneously. And so we basically uh, had participants. This was completely exploratory, you know. So my my basically my my interest in the research I do these days and the methods I apply and sort of the, you could say, the, the science philosophy that's behind um, behind all this research, it, it developed gradually. Like, I basically got into this thing not knowing where the journey would end. It's just, it was just fascinating and, and I went on with it, you know. I was... I was in my second or third year of my of my PhD. Like, what did I know, you know? But mm. but we but after a few studies, we we knew one thing for sure, and that was, when you have people spatially arrange occupations, you mm. know, uh, in the way they they desire, like without priming them to use any any dimensions for spatial organization, then then what you get, averaged across across participants. It's not the dimensions in the stereotype uh, content model like it was not it was not this these maps cognitive maps mm. um, that participants created they, they were not reminiscent of of what we expected and what what theories of social perception would have expected and and we didn 't believe it at first, so we replicated internally, and then we thought, huh, maybe it 's something about um uh, occupational groups as stimuli. So, lawyers, politicians, janitors, mm. surgeons, you name it, you know, cleaners. And, and so, so we, we went back to the original stimuli, um, uh, tested in the stereotype content model, which, which were social groups, you know. We, we tested the very stimuli that Susan Fiske, um, examined, had examined a decade ago. Then we collected our own samples of stimuli and time and again, you know, we, like so, the particularly striking finding was we expected people to spontaneously differentiate social groups by uh, by their trustworthiness, by their morality, by their friendliness. You know, so this is like a a dimension that's you you could say theoretically and and also empirically closest to to global evaluation, to just telling apart good and bad, and you know, and that's basically one of the main functions. You know, we could agree on uh, of, of psychological functioning, and so we were like, sure, we would find people would be basically putting everything they like in one corner, everything they dislike uh, or groups they dislike in the other corner or side of the screen. But people didn't do that, um, and so this was just um, this was just something that that re- replicated robustly, and at some point it became clear to to Roland and me. We have to communicate this, you know, because uh, because if you look at the literature on uh, on the stereotype content model, um, the the methods they use, they they are they are less data driven in 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 the moment in which uh, sort of the, the, the researchers running these studies in their designs. Um, uh, pre-specify the dimensions uh, that they present to to participants for to rate stimuli on. So like in the sense, you know, if you have people rate a bunch of groups on a warmth dimension or, or and a competence dimension? Then obviously uh, you cannot find evidence for a, for a model of of social perception other than uh, than a two dimensional model of warmth and, uh, and mm-hmm. competence. You know, this this. You just don't have data to plot other dimensions and 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 further investigate them. It's a, and and we went sort of that's what we thought at the time. We went one step back mm-hmm. and handed over to our participants uh, the, the, the choice of dimension for mental representation and comparison of of whatever stimulus domain of interest and mm-hmm. and for our, our case mostly social groups and when we did that we found what people do consensually is um, they differentiate social groups by their perceived um, we call the first dimension like agency uh economic success so people differentiated Groups that are higher in status, more powerful, um, that are being stereotyped as more more wealthy, but also more dominant and confident versus less so. So like examples for groups scoring high on that dimension are um, rich people, uh, politicians, celebrities, examples for groups scoring low up, poor people, alcoholics, immigrants, uh, and and homeless people and so on. And sort of, (laughs) they were like two you could say two surprising findings that we felt we need to communicate. And one is we didn't find, as I said, evidence for differentiation along a trustworthiness uh, um, dimension. Instead of evidence for trustworthiness, we found evidence for a a dimension that we dubbed um, beliefs, ranging from conservative to progressive. So what, what participants did is they sorted um some groups uh in one on one side or corner of the screen and they th- what they had in common was these groups were um groups that that people consensually uh stereotype as traditional religious conventional and politically conservative and on the other side the average participant would place um groups they they stereotype as liberal uh, science oriented uh, alternative and um uh modern yeah um so
1: And Alex, do the participants get, are they labels that they get that then they're grouping into or is it picture, like what are they placing on the, yeah.
2: They're basically, they're basically seeing a blank screen Mm -hmm. and they're placing, um, so, um, all groups start in a random position in a matrix in the middle of the screen Mm -hmm. in boxes. So there's like Mm -hmm. a box and it says poor people. And then there's the ah. second box and it says rich or homeless or celebrities. And what people do is they can like click on the box mm-hmm. and drag and drop it to a different uh, spot on the screen and leave it there. And then they pick the next group and drag and drop that group. And, and mm-hmm. so basically they, they dissolve this matrix in the center of the blank screen to create a map, a mm-hmm. cognitive map of social groups. And they're only... Instruction is place groups you think are more similar closer together and the ones that are more dissimilar further apart. And, and this, this is actually sort of the cornerstone of this method because similarity is inherently ambiguous. Like when I ask you to rate the similarity of two things, then you can arrive at very different judgments depending on how you interpret similarity. And that's what this data driven method forces participants to do. Like I give you an example, like our doctors and Politicians, similar or dissimilar? If you base your judgment on a, sponta- by you, spontaneously selected dimension of trustworthiness, then you would, you might end up judging their dissimilar, you know, because typically people stereotype doctors as trustworthy and politicians not so much, right? Mm-hmm. But if you choose to... Um, to interpret and rate similarity in terms of status uh, or salary, then you might end up at the opposite judgment, namely, uh, actually, doctors and politicians are similar because they both make uh, make a lot of money, right? And and so you have you have these similarity data, and you can uh, with additional data that you collect later, you can disambiguate. Um, the dimensions that a, a participant or a group of participants uh, um, spontaneously selected earlier in the in the arrangement task uh, yeah. okay so basically what you do is you have participants do the similarity sorting and then you fix that you save the coordinates of the of the groups in like the similarity space that people created mm-hmm. and then uh, either you have a different set of participants or you have the same participants rate all groups on all sorts of, you know, candidate dimensions that could explain the earlier, the previous Mm. spatial sorting of the groups. And you can, uh, in in regression models, you can predict the sort of spatial configuration of the groups from the same or other participants' ratings on all these candidate dimensions um, that you collect Uh, ratings for later and and so so then then there's fit indices and and they tell you some dimension is a is a better description of their sorting than other dimensions
0: yeah yeah it's um it's it's pretty cool so like um i've tried it uh well i guess a simplified method of it where i had instead of groups i had individual targets and this is this is what i contacted alex about because i had this idea that i wanted to do this
1: yeah i've in- been here i like i hear so many similarities when when i was talking i'm <laughs> like oh yeah i can see that in uh, some of paul's work yeah <laughs>
0: so these targets were varying on um social perceived social class so these are photographs of targets rather than groups uh social mm-hmm. class age gender and race and i'm just basically Basically presenting participants with pairs of them, so randomly selected pairs and just saying how similar or different are these targets. And I didn't really know how well it would work. So essentially you just you end up with this distance matrix, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you have a roughly an idea after you've collected up a, a lot of a ton of data how different overall your sample thinks each target is from each other target. And then you sort of, you put that into a like multi-dimensional scaling and it, it spits out to you, ah, oh, there's like five dimensions going on here, but you don't know what those dimensions are, right? Mm-hmm. You still yeah. have to give them names, right? right? But what I, what I found was it was really easy. It was amazingly easy to give them names, right? Mm-hmm. So these same targets have been explicitly rated on gender, race, um, social class, age, stuff like that. And it was just amazing to me because... The first dimension correlates at like 0.95 with ratings of social class. The second dimension correlates 0.9 with gender. And then there's like, it's just so clear. It the solution just came out so clearly and neatly. And the other cool thing is you can just arrange the targets on their scores, like according to their scores on these like spontaneously emerging dimensions. And I don't know, it was one of the highlights of my grad school experience was seeing just how how neatly... Uh, these dimensions just emerge, and yeah. like in hindsight, it's kind of obvious. Like people have to people have to base their difference decisions regarding similarity dissimilarity on something, right? Yeah. They're not just going to yeah. pull them out of midair. But it was still pretty cool for me just to see these dimensions just really just pop out of the data like that.
2: Yeah, and and actually, I mean, um, you know, we thought we had we had come up with with a great. Uh, um, new technique of, of analyzing, you know, uh, um, these these multidimensional uh, similarity or proximity spaces. But this technique exists for decades. And mm. like if you go surfing uh, Google Scholar or, or whatnot, then you discover like 30, 40, 50 years ago, people mm. have already applied this technique to making sense of... Um, uh, 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 Parent-child relationships, Mm. uh, uh, (laughs) uh, employee-boss relationships, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, countries um, uh, in the world. It's been applied to a lot of... um, uh, similar, stimulus, stimulus domains and, and figuring out that the uh, dimensions that, um, that people used to represent them just for some reason it wasn't so popular anymore in the last 20 years. And, uh, but it was very interesting for us to see. I mean, this kind of, uh, data driven, uh, dimension identification, it's, it's been around for, a, uh, for a long while. Um, and, and by the way, a, another comment. I mean, I was one really, you know, convincing and exciting... Um uh, uh aspect of the method i i could not agree uh, um, with you more as the clarity of the results you get you know you mentioned like correlations of 0.80 0.90 well mm-hmm. well at the same time this should make you like a little uh cautious and wary because you know we all know this uh, voodoo correlations paper and I, so uh, once i see correlations that high i'm like wait a minute what's going on here yeah. and and actually this is also related to to this paper and and um so the further development of, of my uh, my line of research, you know, because what what this method does, so the standard way to apply to combine MDS with with dimension identification is to um, to aggregate similarity sorting across participants, mm-hmm. to multidimensionally scale aggregated or so to speak mean ratings of um, similarity between stimuli, and to then to then read. A sort of uh, a map of mean or average similarity based on mean ratings for the stimuli by a, by a second sample of participants. So what we basically did in applied to our research is we we basically disambiguated a two dimensional similarity space based on mean ratings uh, for for the groups in the space on status and on on beliefs or ideology, right? Uh, and what these mean ratings do is they um, they get rid of like once, once you, once a lot of data goes into these means, they get rid of all noise. Okay, that's so, so the, because it's noise is randomly distributed or uh, classical test theory, and and so that drives up the correlation. Say eh? if you do this on the analysis on of of the level of individual participants, you never get correlations that high. Okay, so if I. Individually Mm -hmm. sort these groups, and I, as the same participant, rate the groups on status and on ideology. Then, because at the level of me as a single individual, you know, there's a lot of noise in both the sorting and the rating, and the maximum correlation between sorting and rating uh, is basically the. uh, is the product of the, uh, of, the, uh, unri- uh, of the reliability of the sorting and the rating, the, then the, the, the correlation cannot be as high, as you said. And, but another point is averaging, averaging uh, eradicates evidence for non-consensual uh, dimensions of social perception. And that actually explains why we didn't find evidence for spontaneous usage of trustworthiness or warmth um, when when our participants from 2016 sorted these groups, so people, we, so we you know, here comes yeah. here comes the C of the ABC model. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: So this is yeah, this is pretty interesting. So like, but I want to like before you get into that, like we should take a step back and just sort of okay. appreciate that like where you're coming into the literature is a very interesting place. Right. So like, and this is part of why I thought this paper was so fascinating mm-hmm. because. Warmth and competence have just been sort of dom- dominating uh, stereotyping forever, right? And um, like you said, a lot of that was based on fairly top-down approaches where it's quite theory-driven and researchers have sort of decided, well, we think warmth and competence are, are going to be guiding a lot of social perception and social judgment, therefore... Yeah, let's ask a whole lot of people to rate a whole lot of groups on warmth and confidence. Yeah. And then we say, ah, look, two dimensions emerge, it's it's warmth and confidence. Whereas you're sort of coming along and saying, hey, well, if we just let's just let people decide for themselves what dimensions that they they want to take into account when um deciding the similarity and dissimilarity of the groups, it doesn't really look like the warmth dimension is spontaneously coming out here at least across the sample as a whole Mm -hmm. and that i mean we'll get to this but that sort of put you on a collision course with some pretty well-established famous (laughs) researchers who kind of have like a lot of stake in warmth and competence being um the two quote-unquote focal dimensions and i really want to know what the hell focal means we can get into that (laughs) later Mm -hmm. when we talk about So you've uh, you've engaged with those researchers in a really creative, uh, collaborative, productive way, I think, with this adversarial collaboration stuff. But, yeah, it was part of what made this paper cool was like how much of a challenge it was to uh, sort of accepted views in the field of uh, this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean it was it it went against as you said it it went against the uh, the dominant perspective in, in in stereotypes about about social group and uh and social perception in in general. I mean although previous data driven ah, you know models of other uh, stimulus domains they had already uh, a traces of of the beliefs they mentioned in them like one very 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 well um Known and and also cited uh, model of human values, basic human values by Shalom Schwartz and his his collaborators. You know, ha- is also two dimensional at a certain level of abstraction, and they they differentiate self um, transcendence, which is uh, like to, to worm for communion uh, uh, versus uh, um, like self enhancement or. or or um, achieving goals—that's uh, same dimension—but the other end is is agency or uh, or competence. And the second dimension in that in that model of basic human values is values varying from uh, those that um, uh, favor conservation uh, versus those that uh, that favor um, a change. So the status mm. advocating uh, the status quo versus being open for and advocating a change. And you know, and that's, that's related to, to the beliefs dimension we find in the perception of social groups. And, and you could also say you find this in personality research. At a certain level of of granularity, like you know, there's all these big two approaches in personality, but then there's also Big Five, Big Six, and so on approaches, and you know, one dimension of the Big Five is this openness uh, uh, to new experiences, you know, so that maps also, uh, you know, not perfectly, but to some some degree on on the beliefs dimension, we find so so why I would agree completely, you know, it was a surprising. Uh, uh, a mm-hmm. finding in the in the social uh, perception and and particularly group stereotypes literature because of the dominance of mm-hmm. you know Susan Fiske's model. Like it's it's not like uh, we we reinvented the ideology wheel. And and also it came at a time when uh, I think through the developmental steps of you know interest in moral psychology and at the same time political psychology. It was. It was not just, you know, this is ha, huh, very surprising, uh, a new dimension that challenges a major model. It was also like huh, there's been a lot of psychology on morality and how that differs between liberals and conservatives, and now political psychology is taking off as a whole new field. And so yeah, it kind of makes sense. Uh, this guy and his collaborators, they like uh, they like find people um, differentiate groups. Um, uh, uh, uh based on on you know their um uh, their perceived ideology or beliefs and and actually i mean if you look if you read susan fiske's um uh, model uh attentively and and you know and you discover this when you come together and you discuss your differences and when you embark on this whole thing of adversarial collaboration that we'll talk about in a few minutes if you read the model you know so one of the socio structural antecedent variables or predictors of of people's warmth perceptions towards groups is um, positive or negative interdependence, you know. Mm. Uh, So basically Susan's model says um, you stereotype groups and their members as warm uh, if... um, if uh, if sort of you can you can collaborate to to have a win-win situation and both get gains uh but you stereotype them as as cold if uh your relationship with them is, is takes more the form of like an, a a zero sum game where like your mm-hmm. gains are their losses and vice versa and and you know that's That, you could already say, it's like a more general formulation of the beliefs dimension we find. Because, you know, many people argue the values that conservatives and liberals Mm -hmm. uh, endorse... And fight about uh, publicly and on social media, and, but also in the Senate and the House of that's that's mutually exclusive uh, uh, values. So like it's a it's a 0 sub game basically, and and so <laughs> so I think what what our methodology and model uh, ended up contributing is like a, uh, if if you take this this aspect of Susan's model into account, it's like it. Translated this positive-negative interdependence antecedent uh, that that for her is outside the stereotype model into something uh, uh, more concrete. Uh, uh, Basically, this for for the domain of social groups, I think positive and negative interdependence on a societal level it manifests very often in in the form of conflict between conservative and and progressive values um uh, so so you know there's connections but you know at first you don't see them and you're baffled by uh, how your results diverge and and they are baffled and yeah i mean it was not exactly the easiest paper to publish i can tell you that we we had lots of data and and we got um we got rejected um and I was super down, you know, because mm-hmm. it was it, it was my biggest paper and I had worked um, on it for quite a while. Um, and but I reread and reread um, uh, the decision letter and at some point, you know, it struck me and I, I realized, guys, this is all criticisms, like I can rule this out with more studies. All I need is more studies, more participants, <laughs> and I can, re- I can. and. <laughs> And all by myself, I hatched this plan, you know. And let's try how far. Let's try to see how far we get. And we, and we basically solved all, all, all the issues. And we resubmitted. So we, we interpreted the rejection as a, as an you know call for resubmission. We invited ourselves for a resubmission. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, it's quite. Uh, but I think I think I mean I think lots of people do that, I, I, given a certain level of confidence. And mm. you should you should not um, you should not do it all the time. Like only when you're really confident. Like this this points of opinion, okay? Then that's really hard to, to rebut. Uh, but uh, but mm. with new data and everything, and mm. and so then it went in. Yeah, um, yeah. that's. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually
0: know that. So you submitted to JPSP and you got a rejection, but with reviews. Is is that right? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah.
2: right. Oh no, no, I, uh, no. It's. I got a straight rejection with. Oh. uh So yeah, we we got we got reviews. Sorry, it was no desk reject. It was a standard reject yeah, yeah. with three uh, three reviewers. Three
0: reviews and the editor was like, based on these reviews, I'm, I'm rejecting this. So yeah. then fresh submission later, and I assume in the letter you were like, well. I know we're not supposed yeah. to do this, but here's the same paper, and yeah. we've added to it, and we've we we really think uh, you should. Yeah, yeah, very polite,
2: huge, enormous cover letter, 20 20- page cover letter, right. and and um, and yeah, and, and it got in, um, and that's awesome. that's that's how the bigger thing uh, started. Did you get the, the same the- reviewers, just out of curiosity, in the second time? I'm, I'm not sure. I think I got both old and new reviewers. Ah. Um, I, I know by now of some of the, some of the people that reviewed it, but, um, but not all of them, uh, um, yeah, whatever.
0: Yeah. There is a lot of
2: data in that paper. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, and do you want to, I don't know if we're want to get into it, but I'd love to hear how the adversarial collaboration started. I heard um, Susan Fist talk about it at SPSB earlier this year. Um, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. So yeah, how did that come about?
2: So she, um, she was invited to give a talk, um, in Cologne where I was, uh, um, becoming a postdoc at the time. Um, and, and I approached her and she had obviously, she had reviewed the paper and, um, yeah, I basically started a, a conversation about, you know, the differences between our findings, like, you know, why do I find evidence for um for people um uh, paying attention to groups' beliefs? Why do I not find evidence for for them paying attention to groups' trustworthiness or warmth? Um and and she obviously had very different findings and we got into a conversation um um about what could explain these findings you know with susan it was like uh, she bought the data like she uh and that i i think that was you know it was a very cool thing of her like she was not defensive you know about the data she's like one of these persons yeah it's uh, it's a lot of studies um there's variations in the studies um and they did a great job data wise and that's what the data shows now you can you know discuss how to interpret those data or what their generalizability is, you know. But mm. those data, um, she she took them serious, um, and she engaged in a, in a in a discussion, and we it was like a, you know, I think half hour discussion or so, and uh, and I felt taken uh, seriously, and I liked that, you know, and somehow, you know do you sometimes have this feeling when there's like an inconsistency in something that's relevant for you then, you know, as a scientist or maybe as a general person, it just keeps bugging you. It's, it's annoying. You know, it's like you want consistency, you want to understand the, there's like a, um, and, and so I guess that's why a couple of weeks later, I, I, um, I still was reasoning about ideas, how to explain away the discrepancy and, uh, and, and we got into an email conversation that also involved a research team from Brussels, led by Vincent Iserbit, um, who has been a collaborator of SUSAN uh, for years. And I actually realized man, this is a, a chance for uh, a collaboration. Without knowing where that would uh, uh, end up at, but uh, I, I was going to... I was going to give it a try. And I at the same time realized it's super inefficient over email, you know, and this mm. whole pandemic, we can zoom and be almost, you know, as if we're in the same room. That was all not happening at the time. And, mm. and so I, I realized, hey, I, I, have to, um, I have to get this going fast and make it big. I have to go there and visit Um, and so my supervisor politely inquired you know I was such a good conversation we had at the conference the other day how about you know Alex comes visit you and your lab for a couple of weeks in summer he has time and you know he's interested in this and and I was like yeah we're great and 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 you know Susan explained it at several conferences now this way like she, she wasn't you know too excited uh, but, uh, but the scientist the good scientist in her yeah. you know said well I have to say yes now you know it's um, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I think I would have uh, reacted to this in, in the same way you know I think that's just human to be a little uh, skeptical and, and, and maybe uh, defensive and she <clears throat> She said at at uh, SESP that um, you know she was she uh, she used the words uh, she thought I would be the, the fox in her hen house. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, so I'm just quoting here. I'm, and I, I, I think uh, that's fun. like a uh,
0: high competence stereotype, low warmth.
2: <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah, maybe. Um, but I was I felt honored, you know, about this joke. Um, and so so I came. And we built, um, we built trust, you know, um, and we started to, to run studies together and we would discuss the designs and, uh, the results and run more studies. And, uh, actually it's a beautiful story because, um, we resolved the discrepancy with concessions, uh, on both sides, on, on both the side of the ABC model and, and also the stereotype content model, um, and uh, we, we advanced the science, you know. It turns out we were both wrong in some ways and right in, 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 in other ways. And it was just a beautiful model, like, rather than a uh, um, model story, rather than to just run studies separately and run them in a way that that yields, you know, supportive results most of the time only for your own preferred camp and, and thereby, you know, um, uh, basically dumps on the other camp, rather than to do that, uh, we got together and, and sorted things out, um, collaboratively. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm super happy about the process and the outcome and, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm still impressed by, by, by Susan and her lab, particularly also, um, uh, you know, she has a, a great graduate student, Gandalf Nicolas. Uh, he was heavily involved in this in this collaboration, and we have we've started a new one also that he led. So like, um, mm. uh, so so that went went beautifully. Yeah.
0: So yeah, so you, I was um, I'm, it's not in press yet, but there's a preprint um with you and Susan, but not not actually just your two models. There's uh, five models altogether, right? Um. And all, yeah. all these people with all <laughs> these five different models getting together, writing a paper, um, to clarify, uh, I guess, what each model says, where are the disagreements, which disagreements can be reconciled, um, mm-hmm. where we're just sort of talking past each other or you know, talking about different contexts or something like that, and, and which cannot. I, um, yeah, so I've been reading this paper and I while I really like the idea of adversarial collaboration mm-hmm. uh in theory um a lot of the time in this while I was reading this I got to a point where I was like you know what I I'm not sure they're going to come up with a way an empirical test where if it turns out this way this theory wins, and if it turns out that way, another theory wins. Just because of, like, these theories are so broad and they're mapped onto something that's so complicated, right? Uh, Our social perception, the way we make inferences or form beliefs about other people or other groups uh, in society is obviously... So, like, I mean, one thing that your model says is that... um, (laughs) you know, similarity in beliefs will sort of causally produce judgments of warmth, right? So mm-hmm. if, I, if I think that a group is similar in beliefs to me, I'm more likely to see them as um, high on communion, right? yeah. uh, high on warmth. Now, nobody in their right mind would say that that doesn't happen right like mm-hmm. and i'm sure if susan fiske was here she there's no way she would say no that never happens mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. so like i yeah. as i was reading this paper i was like all of these theories are right mm-hmm. right like n- nothing that these theories say happens doesn't happen mm-hmm. do you know what i mean so like um it's all about uh, you know and everything that these theories say happens probably happens in some contexts and doesn't happen in other contexts. And I was just like, I was just reading and I was just thinking, you know what, like clear differentiating tests that are going to convince people <laughs> that one one of these models is better than another model are just going to be really, really hard to come up with. Um, yeah, you, that's, yeah. You mentioned that like you you had sort of had some results where you like, gave ground on on some areas and so like what were those kind of i'm just curious like what were the sort of specific points of disagreement where you actually sort of sat down and you had an empirical test where you guys were just making clearly different predictions about what the results would be
2: well i mean the the prime example is spontaneous uh, usage of the warmth dimension for differentiating um uh, groups in in this uh, spatial arrangement or sorting paradigm. so like Susan's model would clearly predict people do put warm groups on one side and cold groups on the other side of the screen, and we we hadn't ah, found we right. hadn't found that we we basically our model contradicted that our model from 2016. Mm. But what we did in 2016 is we aggregated similarity ratings and warmth ratings across perceivers and aggregation uh, uh, averages out levels uh, levels uh, out uh, um, um uh, systematic disagreement between uh raters uh, about targets like i give you an example if you if you rate the warmth of the groups democrats and republicans and your, your participant sample is one conservative person and one liberal liberal person. Right? <laughs> the liberal person uh, will see a huge difference. Like the Democrats will get a 10 out of 10 and the Republicans will get a 0 out of 10, right? So like for, for the liberal person, they, they use the full scale. That the conservative rater also uses the, the full scale, just they put the republicans on top of the scale, the most likable, trustworthy, and they put the, the democrats on, on the bottom of the scale. Now what happens if you average, average or aggregate ratings uh, warmth ratings for the two groups across these two uh, uh, raters? Now all of a sudden both groups have a rating mean of five. Like they're moderately, averagely uh, warm. They're neither warm nor cold, right? There's no mm. difference uh, uh, anymore between the groups on the warmth scale. Well, so according, if you have-
0: to, according to John Jost, it'll actually be uh, it, not totally symmetrical. But this is a, maybe for a story from another podcast. With people were arguing about this on Twitter today. It was interesting. Basically saying, yeah, like,
2: you mean this new comment that he that he published yeah, with his yeah, PhD? Yeah, study. yeah, yeah. I read it too. Conservatives I'm skeptical about hate that,
0: liberals but. more than liberals hate conservatives. Yeah, so conservatives. So maybe conservatives. we'll get a, end up at a six, maybe. <gasps>
2: Yeah, that's right. So, like, yeah, the idea is uh is prejudice is stronger for conservative perceivers than for liberal perceivers. I'm uh my data is more on the side of the um ideological conflict hypothesis by Mark Brandt and Jared Crawford. So, like, I find equally strong pre- uh, prejudice. But, you know, it, maybe it's a different podcast. But but basically it's coming back to your question. So, um, if you repeat this analysis that we did in 2016 on the level of individual uh, uh, participants, like basically without averaging, mm-hmm. so what you do for that is you need a completely new studies, completely new data. You need a, a designs mm-hmm. in which one and the same participant first does the similarity sorting, and then the same participant rates the groups on you know, candidate dimensions that we would use for to reverse engineer the, simi- the meaning of the similarity ratings. If you do that, all of a sudden, you find evidence for, for spontaneous usage of warmth is equally strong as evidence for spontaneous usage of agency and beliefs. And so these results basically reconciled um, mm. sort of our differences in a very sort of, in a good way for both models, because what what uh, what these results showed was basically our, Our strategy of of aggregated analysis, it overlooked spontaneous warmth perception. And so our model was wrong. And Susan's model is right. But at the same time, we learned a lot about about warmth perception, namely that the lion's share of warmth perception is non-consensual. Uh, people mm. disagree massively about which groups in society are warm and which are cold. It mm. depends entirely on whom you ask. And it depends not only on on differences between perceivers in terms of ideology, but also in terms of status and possibly other dimensions, you know. There's a lot of idiosyncrasy in in these ratings. And we can actually show that with, with linear mixed model analyses. But at the same time, you know, uh, doing these analyses... On the level of individual uh, participants that we did in 2016, we again found uh, evidence for for the beliefs dimension, and so you know Susan, I think, uh, and others uh, uh, they now agree. Yes, I mean for the specific domain uh, of of social group perception, um, uh, ideology is a, is a relevant uh, uh, a concern um, at least uh, at least when people compare. Um, at least when people rate the similarity of lots of uh, lo- lots of groups all at uh, all at once like we yeah we but we have a second yeah go ahead i still
0: don't see a real disagreement right because your theory you never said that people don't use warmth rather you said like it this is uh, this is a result of similarity on beliefs and similarity um similarity on agency like that was all in the abc
2: model right no just that's all new that's the new abc model from 2020 that's that's the paper i collaborated on with susan the original model there's no similarity whatsoever uh, in that model that's uh, we went into this collaboration with the prediction people don't use warmth because we don't find it um but yeah, but the, what, it is the ABC
0: model. Like you did have a C.
2: Yes, we found in communion. 2016. Mm. Yeah, we, we had a C in that in that original model, and that C was um, the center of the two-dimensional um, space spanned by uh, by agency and beliefs. So what the center means is um, uh, the center of a two-dimensional space spanned by agency beliefs is groups that are perceived as moderate in terms of both agency and beliefs, okay? A group can be mm. extreme mm. in terms of agency, so like very rich, very poor, or it can be extreme in terms of ideology, so very conservative or very progressive. Or a group can be moderate on both dimensions, and then it's in the center of this two-dimensional map. And what we found is in 2016 is uh, uh, people perceive groups as most trustworthy and uh, and communal, uh, or the more trustworthy and communal, um, the more these groups are average on these two on these two other dimensions. So basically, we 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 modeled in this two-dimensional space communion as moderateness or averageness on both status and ideology. So people trust and like groups more. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that are non-extreme or moderate in terms of, uh, but why is that so? In a um, as many reasons, but one simple reason is in a randomish sample of participants, because the distribution of of perceivers, you know, status and ideology is, you could say, like uh, it approaches normality like your average perceiver will be from that spot in the map he or she or they will will themselves see themselves as moderate in terms of um of status and ideology and thus averaging across participants you know reflects the most dominant uh, perspective that is represented most often by most participants and that's why on on average in aggregate ratings you will find this curvy linear inverted uh, actually inverted U shaped uh, uh, relation between uh, targets uh, status beliefs on the one hand and and their uh, warmth or communion on the other hand so there was a c but it wasn't it wasn't an independent dimension you know and at the time we mm. argued people infer people infer target groups warmth from Spontaneously perceiving, uh, them as moderate or, or extreme on agency and beliefs. But, but it's not a, a fundamental independent dimension because otherwise the space would have been three dimensional. But the space that we modeled 2016 was two dimensional with sort of a, an added layer. And that was this polar dimension of warmth that sort of peaks in the center of, of the two-dimensional map and and it get, and that gets colder uh, towards the the edges where, where groups are marginalized in a quite literal sense. Uh.
0: Okay. Yeah, I guess I hadn't quite realized that you had that change since 2016. I'm skeptical, though, that if we asked you in 2016, hey, Alex, do you think maybe like liberals think other liberals are warmer and conservatives think other conservatives are warmer. If you would have just said, no, <laughs> we, yeah. nobody, nobody thinks about warmth ever. It's not like, do you know what I mean? Like I, I just like, it's
2: obvious, no?
0: Right. Right. And, 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 and that's what I think about like a lot of this stuff. Cause I think if we had Susan Fiske here and we said, so you don't, you don't think people like think about other people's beliefs or other groups' beliefs at all. She, there's no way she she would say like no that that never comes into social perception. And I guess I mean that leads a bit to what I wanted to ask about this idea of focal focal dimensions, right? Because um, in well, in your paper, yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead.
2: Did you? Well, I mean Susan would answer to this. Well, look, um, I get mean ratings for a bunch of groups, and some groups score higher than others. So definitely, people do agree on that some groups are warmer than others you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but until you empirically so so until you empirically compare the the magnitude of people's agreement about groups warmth to people's disagreement about groups warmth um you're not knowing how much of the uh, How much of the systematic warmth variance you're studying? Like, and, and our new analysis in this collaborative paper with Susan, they show actually the lion's share of, of warmth variance is non-consensual. And, you know, her model is perfectly uh, fine if your theoretical interest is to study Consensual differences between between groups' warmth and their effects on downstream emotions, behavior intentions, and behaviors. And and believe it or not, I mean, the, the there is consensual differences in groups' warmth, and they do have often documented uh, uh, downstream consequences on emotions. Just if you compare, if you run these analyses that we just published in JESP, it turns out. Uh, the lion's share of warmth perception is disagreement, and it would have been hard to predict what sort of the greater chunk of variance is it agreement on groups warmth or disagreement on groups warmth so um so maybe she just uh she wasn't interested it was not part of of her model because she's interested in studying uh you know consensual differences and but we discovered actually there's a massive opportunity mm-hmm. in studying disagreement on warmth because it's huge you know and mm-hmm. it can predict uh an independent huge chunk of variance of downstream mm-hmm. uh, emotions and and behaviors and that's what the, that's what the abc model sort of uh, now has been developing towards and we've started mm-hmm. to predict behavior in economic games in cooperation games and we successfully do so and so on and so forth yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I I just want to say, like, I think this is so cool, right? Like, there's a saying that if you want to go fast, go alone, if you want to go far, you know, go together, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. If the idea is to get to the truth and not, you know, is it this theory or that theory, then I think we should, yeah, right? Like, more people who have competing theories should be sort of thinking together in a way. And Paul, you said that, oh, you know, did you ever design an experiment where you were like, oh, clearly, if this is the right thing, then if this theory is correct, then we'll see this and that. Uh, um, But I don't know if that's the goal, right? The goal is sort of just like push the field or the thinking forward. And I don't know if it happens like in a second where like, yeah, we'll do this one experiment and we'll know right off the bat which theory is true, right? I think it just like builds incrementally over time. But I just think this whole idea is very cool. Yeah
2: yeah we we so it's it's there's two situations one is two two camps study exactly the same thing and they find opposite results and then uh, and then yeah th- then you have an adversarial collaboration where where basically uh, at the end uh, one camp wins and it the, the finding was just a fluke for the other camp but you know with the five models that we most recently brought together uh, for compa- systematic comparison that was not the starting situation the starting mm-hmm. situation was both a threat and a massive opportunity you know the threat was we have on the on the at face value we have similar models of of social um, perception and cognition that disagree on what what dimensions which dimensions are, are primary? Which are more important? And what is the relation between those dimensions? If you know somebody's high or low in one dimension, what's your inference about the other dimension? And these, these five models at, at, uh, at face, uh, at first sight, they disagree about all these, these questions, you know, but, uh, and the threat in that is, that readers get confused, you know, and they and they lose interest in the field because, you know, oh, basically you can justify anything, uh, you, uh, anything is predictable, whatever you find, you pick the, the theory that, that fits to this, uh, and, and basically everybody disengages from, from uh, uh, studying um, the field anymore. But the massive opportunity in this is... Um, we when we sat together um, and when you closely read the literature we've all been studying different populations of targets using different uh, operationalizations of our socially evaluative dimensions and different methodological uh, paradigms. I take the ABC model similarity scaling approach that's that's something that's wildly different you know and Mm. and and a lot of these approaches and operationalizations like they have like implicit silent assumptions um and you discover those only when you uh, engage in a systematic, collaborative comparison of of what are the theoretical roots of your research approach? What's um, um, what's the scientific philosophy uh, that you're surfing? What's what's the exact methods approaches, and what are your findings actually? And and then you can move the whole field forward uh, by realizing together actually this model says something about this specific uh, uh, part of, of, you know, uh, you could say a theoretical space and each model, you know, covers a bit of the theoretical space. There's some overlap, but there's also some distinct contributions. And that's how you can basically, um, you can sharpen the aim and scope of each model by by these Mm -hmm. kinds of systematic comparisons. and, And you discover that actually a lot of contradictions, they are more apparent than real. Like one perfect example is is the relationship between these big two dimensions of, some model calls it warmth competence, the other calls it a communion agency and so on and so forth. Um, our five models find that they are, their relation is orthogonal, zero correlation. Another model finds positive correlations. A third model finds negative correlations under some specific circumstances. Uh, uh, my uh, model finds uh, an inverted U shape or a curvilinear correlation. Like you know, you could you could be outraged by this and go, "What the fuck, you know?" But if you study the models, uh, um. In detail and we've done it and it was very effortful but you know it was really worth it then you discover no 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 wait one model is about perceiving the self these are the others the second model is about perceiving the self as an in-group member the third model is about intergroup perception for the case of mostly two models like how do two Uh, 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 groups that want to you know cooperate and stay in a harmonious relation how do they negotiate uh, uh, their self and other perception on on the big two and then uh, Susan's model uh, studies uh, uh, many uh, or or several groups uh, at a time but those groups are proximal uh, groups and her model uh Tries to explain, you know, how people prepare for for social interaction, maybe. And then my model is is you know even more inclusive. It's it's the many groups model. It studies all groups that people can possibly think of uh, that are part of society. And the similarity, the sim implicit assumption also in the similarity rating approach is uh, is you activate epistemic uh, uh, motives uh, and you basically. Um, uh, uh, push people into describing rather than evaluating, uh, because the distance between the target groups and the self is so is so high. And you know, so what I'm trying to say is really uh, this contrast or juxtaposition of of theoretical um, uh, traditions and uh, and and empirical approaches. It's very inspiring. It's very informative, and it, it's humbling as well. You know, because if you don't do these things you have a tendency to think your model's the shit. and uh, uh, But, you know, it's not the case. Uh, uh, talking to uh, adversaries uh, respectfully and taking them serious, it, uh, uh, it shows you where the limits are of, of, of your models and your research and vice versa. And I learned a lot and I, I encourage it.
0: Uh. Yeah, I
2: think... I think it's
0: pretty it's pretty cool what you guys have done. Um I I also wonder though, like what what a model is and what it's for, and whether there's just ultimately like this level of subjectivity to that. Um so try to explain what I mean. So like obviously like social cognition is very complicated. Social perception is extremely complicated and when we try to make a model, what we're trying to do is uh, just superimpose a, a simplified framework to sort of divide up this super complex thing, so we can we can kind of think about it. And obviously, when we, we are doing that, no matter what um, no matter what framework we superimpose. There's always nuance that we've left out. Like somebody mm-hmm. can can always come along and say, "Well, yeah, your model says says this, but in this context, this will happen." Or, or there's also this people like people also perceive this. People, you, do you know what I mean? And and so mm-hmm. like, um, like right now, you have a model, right? And you you've decided. Uh, I think this is a useful way of thinking about this. Um, this is a useful level of abstraction or this this model sort of, um, it describes the, the parts of this complex system that I'm interested in, right? And yeah, like it, somebody else can have a totally competing model and be talking about the system in a completely different way or dividing up the system in a completely different way that to them is more useful and you're both right. And like, like you're saying, like, and a lot of the like apparent disagreements, if you actually get down to, well, what is Alex actually talking about? What is Susan actually talking about? They kind of, they disappear. Like eventually if you just have enough people using their common sense and being reasonable and saying, Oh, so what did you do? What did you find? So what targets were you using? (laughs) What participants were you using and stuff like that? So I just don't want, it's like, you guys have produced this paper and, I mean, in some ways, you're sort of proposing like a combined on some levels, like a consensual model um, where there's consensus, and there is some things in the paper that you you sort of talk about as like remaining disagreements and stuff like that. But like, what I guess, like to you, like how do you think about that in terms of its its usefulness? Like, what how how do you want people to use this? the this model or do do you think yeah like do you think like it's hit this sort of sweet sweet spot of level of abstraction where yeah this is the right way to think about social perception um and yeah do do you know like i don't really even know what i'm trying to ask but like what what is like because you've made a career out of having a model right and now you're sort of like moving a modest
2: on. a very modest career a yeah, beginning but, career no
0: i i think you're doing very well <laughs> but no like and now you're sort of like a big part of your career is like reconciling different people's different models but like yeah so like i i personally sometimes just wonder with these models like what 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 use is this? Like how, like what?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, what I,
0: yeah. I, and I so, don't mean to be disrespectful, but no, I, I just want to like get it, like how you are sort of thinking about like, what is a model? What is it useful for? Like what makes a good model? Yeah.
2: Hmm. So, so, um, So what we have is like we have sort of a hierarchical structure, right? So like if we if if we know the the real world context of social perception and interaction. Um, um, that we want to make uh, predictions for, that we want to maybe redesign uh, um, with interventions to, to the benefit of everyone involved in all of society. If if we know the context specifically and there is a model that uh, that was made for describing, explaining exactly this context, then it's great to use that model, you know, but sometimes we want to make predictions and design interventions across contexts and then we have to go more abstract and we have to in our case then uh, uh, develop uh, predictions and interventions from sort of the integrated uh, uh, framework that that we published uh, together in this in this paper so so there is no sort of uh, uh, right or wrong uh, um, l- level of um, of a model generally I mean some models are they're more broadly applicable they, they have a broader scope but as a function of that uh, they, uh, uh, they can make less specific claims and, and their claims will be you know uh, um, will be more vague like they, their predictions will hold uh, better across contexts but not necessarily in specific context you know if if you know the specific context and there is a model for it use that model you know so and that's how i understand this this uh, this adversarial collaboration and and i mean the analogy is personality models you know you can have the same data and some people although this is disputed they they argue for like lacking intelligence for a, for a, a big one a, a one personality factor, and below that is the big two personality model, and then there's five dimensions, the big five, and now people say there's the six-arco model, they add a six dimension, and then all of these dimensions have sub-dimensions that are also tested with different items in these batteries, and so so this, there's like, um, like a model, modular granularity, and uh, models, uh, models that um, that become simpler and simpler. They they apply more and more broadly, uh, but but their predictive uh, strength or power uh, is is reduced for um, for it tends to be reduced for like specific contexts. So so while I would say like you know our models have a, a right uh, and they're, and they're justified to to coexist peacefully now that we've discovered that they're they they're all sort of making uh, unique predictions uh, or predictions for unique theoretical space, but there is also some commonality, some common denominator that we agreed on. Um, and if if you want to study um, social perception and and, and cognition, in, that's okay. Thanks. So so if you want. If you want to study the phenomenon uh, at the most general level, then then uh, then you ought to, you know, orient yourself uh, on based on the on the framework. And uh, for example, I mean, I give you an example one one of this um, one of these integrations that we published uh, is about what dimensions uh, reappear across, you know, contexts of social evaluation. And beliefs is not part of that, you know, because simply there's not yet enough evidence uh, to argue that people are uh, spontaneously uh, differentiate all sorts of stimuli according to to their beliefs. Like we don't know whether people do that for faces, for individuals. There's good evidence for groups, for occupational groups, for for the U.S. states or regions in the U.S. But you know, international generalization, generalization to other uh, uh, types of social entities. It's not, uh, so I had to step down and say, okay, it's not part of the, of the big picture integration as yet. Uh, um, so, so that's what I mean. You know, it's, it depends on what your research or a, a, a application question is how, um, yeah. Does that, does that sound like the question you asked or does, is that a useful answer anyway, or,
0: um, well, it's not like I asked a coherent question anyway, <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I circling
0: ask, a similar
2: topic.
1: I will ask like a broader, and this might sound like a naive question, but I I understand the appeal of more like data driven approaches. Like, yeah, instead of sort of doing a top down, like, oh, com- you know, competence and warmth. Although I will say, the categories of groups that we're giving participants, those are also top down, right? Like, um, people are coming, sure. with, but anyway. No, we, not. Ha-
2: we have participants generate those categories
1: oh so like yeah. poor person rich person that's all participant generated yes okay yeah yeah all right so, yeah so i totally understand the appeal to um for that but just talking again from like a philosophy of science perspective right there's the idea that when you're doing an experiment or you're doing research right you you're sort of thinking I have this theory, I have a hypothesis, I have some idea of what I expect to see in the world. And then I go out and I look for it, like, hey, d- does it map on, right? Does a real world map on to how I thought it was going to be, right? And that to me seems like really the core of science, right? Like you kind of develop some theory and then you go like, hey, is that actually going to replicate in the world? So doing it the other way around, I'm, I'm just, like, I kind of struggle with it a little bit, just like, yeah. Again, I don't have a question, but it's just. I think like-
2: it's a it's a it's a circle, you know. It right. it goes in circle. Induction, deduction, like. Yeah. So so the ABC model is by no means a data driven model. Like we 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 did exploratory data analysis, developed the model, then it became a hypothesis, and then the studies that ensued would be you know confirmatory studies, and and then then we moved from uh, you know induction to uh, to uh, to deduction, uh, and and so it's. Um, uh, i think it goes in in in, in circles uh, really and definitely uh, you you should have um, uh, you should predict stuff and and confirm it uh, but where do you get those predictions from mm. i think i think social reality uh, the reality of social perception it's so complex mm. that you know whatever a priori model you can be the wisest researcher you are you are not you won't be able uh, to mm. to accurately predict what variables are important What's the relationship? Is it uh, causal? Is it uni? Is it bidirectional? Is it actually linear or curvilinear? Mm. Like that's that's stuff. Like show me the researcher that comes up with the you know uh, uh, right high, uh, uh, predictions uh, uh, right, right away. Off the bed, it's a, yeah no no freaking way i mean it's mm. it's so complex even i mean mm. uh, paul and i were looking at you know how do people uh perceive facebook profile pictures at the moment Ah, you would be surprised how many different dimensions we can we can separate in this data-driven uh, you know new research and uh, mm. and actually this this student by uh by uh of susan gandalf he he had people uh just uh, describe um I think it's, it's submitted or under review or in press already, this paper. And she, he had like, uh, um, people describe groups with one adjective and then Mm -hmm. there's like he has like natural language processing tools and you know they call it the spontaneous stereotype content model it's going to be out soon hopefully like you'd be surprised how many dimensions they find it's Mm -hmm. more it's more than in the sem it's more than in the abc Mm -hmm. it's more it's just you know you can't predict the complexity of reality so you know why don't Mm -hmm. you get your predictions from uh, you know a data driven uh, uh, mm. or even you know non quantitative qualitative uh, uh, approach uh, first in the first mm. place you know uh, so
0: that's um yeah. that's really interesting and and like yeah it really connects to how I've come to think about social cognition because like uh, you know I've been doing this research you know six years in in grad school and I mean the thing that has stuck out to me the most in my data is like the complexity and and the things that i think are really important like I, I came into grad school just thinking oh man social class is really important really really from an intergroup perspective social class stereotyping is really important but then you get this data and you realize well no not really not not in terms of like variance explained And like, you know, like I'm, and I'm, I'm doing this thing and I add like a little more layer of complexity and my variance explained goes down by half. And then I Mm -hmm. add another little layer of complexity and it goes down by half again. And then I realize, well, how many layers of complexity are in real life? You Uh, come into grad school
1: realizing that human behavior is complicated?
0: No, I mean, well, (laughs) I think that, no, no. And this is the point I'm trying to make is that like, I think that in social cognition, when we make models, when we simplify, when we break things down and, and study them and find these effects and then go public with these effects, oh, we found this effect here, people use this stereotype here, people use this bias here, the complexity is lost. And we teach people to think about social interaction in an incredibly like, simplified, incorrect way. Like There's people walking around just thinking, oh, that person's going to stereotype me this way because they're they're this gender or they're this race or something, they're going to react to me this way. And it's like, well, no, if you do research on this and you look at the data, you realize, like, you don't know that at all. Like, we can can predict very little of this.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, like the ideal paper it does a lot of things, like it goes to the lab and isolates uh, independent, dependent variable. It tries to study the relationship experimentally. It establishes, you know, a a causal relationship under controlled conditions. Then they show it's robust across different uh, targets, uh, different uh, 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 methods uh, of lab lab studies. And then the ideal paper, what it does is it adds a field study, a reanalysis of, you know, uh, uh, data publicly available or scraped uh, on the net or, or uh, and, and it tries to uh, basically show the same effect, controlling uh, for lots of other variables. Uh, that are measurable, that make sense as alternative explanations, and then you know the compare the, the combination of of controlled laboratory exp- experimentation and and proof that um, um, uh, or evidence that this 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 mechanism and this outcome, you know, you you can. Uh, You can find data in the field that supports uh, your lab uh, uh, Mm. insights from the lab research that are are causal. Mm. That combination is convincing. But I mean, I agree with you. If you study stuff in the lab or like in scenario vignette studies on on MTurk and you leave your project just there, then, yeah, people don't really know what what to do with it. So I would always advise go the full way publish you know if if the consequences that you publish less papers um uh, that's okay you know because it really it's very valuable and relevant for uh for the field but also your your career to have like one really you know big and thorough uh, a contribution that that tries to uh, to get at the phenomenon from all sorts of of angles i um i that's that's my answer <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, yeah, of course the real world is really complicated and some of the ways we do stuff and like these simple models we create kind of gets rid of it. But in some cases I think that might be a goal, right? If we're trying to isolate some, and then, yeah, like Alex said, right, then you kind of look at it, yeah, then you, you know, find out the boundary conditions and you find out which context it applies in. Um, but I think you do have to build some, like, you have to build up, right? You have to start from something simple and then build up instead of like, yeah, I'm going to look at all this complexity all together and try to make sense of it. I don't know. That approach just does not, I, I like.
0: I want, yeah, I guess I'm just, psychology seems somewhat unique to me in a way, right? Like, So obviously, like, you take hard sciences like physics and stuff like that, and they can, yeah. you know, try to isolate and understand phenomena in a lab. Mm -hmm. um but then there's there's no way for that to be wildly misinterpreted by the public right like if i'm studying some like phenomenon in physics and i'm like ah when when you do this this happens and maybe you know that can be used in this technology in the world and stuff like that there's no way that all of a sudden, everybody in society can start like basing their entire ideolo- right. ideology, like. And on physicists aren't going I, around
1: also telling people like, "Hey, you know, all your electrons are working this right. way all the time." Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, like, yeah. It's psychology has this unique way of like applying the scientific method and then finding things that can just really like, and then communicating them in a in a way that like. Is, is getting people further away from reality than mm. closer to it, in, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Even though like, everything you're finding might be true. Um,
1: but in very specific context for but, very specific you're, people. You're,
0: yeah, you're building maps of the world in people's heads that are just not true at all and incredibly, like...
1: I mean, a,
2: a, a different approach that might be worthwhile pursuing to address this problem, uh, possibly, is uh, you start in the world. Like, you just, you know, you... You observe a phenomenon uh, that is um, that is general and interesting and novel enough uh, and you you basically you you pick that for scientific study and you know right away uh, this is something that we need to learn more uh, about and then you um you dig into the um, the, the mechanisms uh, and and the, the causal path and and chain uh, or multivariable model in in your lab uh, research, but but you basically you have a very practical uh, uh, problem and it's general and interesting re- enough. And whatever you discover you know, about the process, it will be it will be. Um, relevant you know because that's that's where your research started so i kind of uh, yeah that's um
1: yeah mm.
0: i have one more question <laughs> uh not everybody can have a model right like you have a model <laughs> susan has a model vincent has a model but like we can't all have models so like that's not fair <laughs> what, what is why? What's so special we can't about you, all have a mo- we
1: can't.
0: What's so special about you that enables you to have a model? Uh, or is it just like I don't know? Like who gets to have a model? That's my. Well,
1: who's stopping you from develop like? Making no, a but model? I don't
0: like. I don't. I, I don't. I don't want to add another model to the party. <laughs> I, I just think like. You, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, uh, maybe one day I will, who knows, who knows? but like not everybody can have model. I guess this is my thing. Like, cause you, you know, you've had a lot of success sort of coming up with this, like finding that didn't fit into these other sort of models and then like introducing, ah, I have my own model, the ABC stereotype model, right? Like, and this is, um, I think it's a valuable contribution. Like I love the paper and I, and I, I love the, uh, adversarial collaboration that you guys have done, but at the same time, that that can't be how we all think about. Like, do you yeah. know what I mean? Even though, it's like, not I, how I, enterprises...
2: I mean. It's not how I thought about it uh, mm-hmm. uh, when the research started. Right? It's just. You find something new, then you dig into it, and then the evidence uh, accumulates. And at some point, it's a body of evidence, you know, and uh, and the model is a way to organize it mm. systematically. But it's mm. like the, the goal was never to develop a model and to have my own model or something. <laughs> and I don't think that you have to have your model, you know, to be uh, successful or whatnot. It's like just uh, if you study something that's that's not fully explored yet and you find something systematic that builds gradually builds over time then at some point um at some point maybe it's a good idea to to dub a model big just because you know mm-hmm. this the acronym and uh, and the label. it's like people have something they recognize they it's it's more easy to memorize. it's but it's not a necessity and uh, and um, and by the way, models come. But they also go, right? <laughs> yeah. It's 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 not like my model, you know, will be around forever or something. That's what science does uh, uh, cruelly. Um, yeah. To yeah. to authors yeah. these models that right. you come up with, there will always be another model, and you know your model yeah. is um, hmm. is valid only for for a certain amount of time.
1: So. You'll have your own fox in the hen's nest at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well. well, well <laughs> I
2: was I was only an apparent fox, right? Because I mean, our models are perfectly um, right. to clarify, like they they coexist peacefully. So I was yeah. I I was not actually a fox. I was a, a, just just what's, another a hen. Uh, <laughs> once
0: she once she understood your beliefs, she the uh, the stereotyping of whether you're a fox or not changed. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I guess in some sense. Any theoretical contribution could be framed as either creating a model or ch- changing a model, right? Um, because theories are just models, really. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, you just need an acronym to get a nice job. <laughs> Right.
1: Or you can name it after yourself, right? Um,
2: that's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's the most sort of. Um, yeah, I wouldn't name anything after myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't I think wanna... anybody would to <laughs> say my model name if I named it after myself. Yeah.
2: No, but... I want to invent a uh, a kind
0: of plot, and I'll call it the the Paul plot or the kind mm. of plot. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or you know what I think would be really cool is, like, PDFs where you can have GIFs in them. Huh. I'd uh... like to invent that because, like, it would be cool, like, inter- you know, things –
1: like kind of like harry potter yeah animated
0: graphs in a pdf i don't see why you couldn't do yeah. that yeah i'm right. sure you could cool. do
1: that yeah
0: all right somebody invented but i thought of it and it's called <laughs> the, <laughs> the plot. all
1: right um i think
0: that's about it like we we uh thank you so much
1: yeah yeah this yeah, is
0: alex. fun
2: this is fun it's always a <laughs> lot of fun um, yeah
0: talking to you alex um and you're doing awesome work. And hey, I think maybe the Facebook data could help you uh, in some way because we definitely get a bit of beliefs coming out. We do,
2: we do. I saw it. Yeah, I was, um, um, yeah, I was curious whether that would pan out, um, uh, and and it did. But we also find sure. find other interesting stuff. So so that's.
0: I think it was always. Gonna, I mean. My God, like some of the Facebook pics have these filters on that say like Black Lives Matter or say (laughs) Blue Lives Matter or something like that. So like people really are putting out, like they're signaling their beliefs in a very strong way. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had some activists in their profile pictures holding up signs saying Mm. very explicitly what their beliefs are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I still need to clean that data. So... It's been fun though. It's been fun. Oh my god! So I just should just say my favorite one. Um, so this is like we randomly sampled Facebook profile pictures. We showed yeah. them to people, and we just said, "Okay, free text response. Use three wow. three um, words to describe this." <laughs> my favorite one was like peaked in high school. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Love, loves horses too much. There were some pretty. There were some pretty funny ones, but yeah. Mm. Um, It was actually kind of fun cleaning that data, so yeah. (laughs) That
1: sounds like fun. Cool. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Thank you for coming to talk to us, and yeah.
2: Sure. Yeah, this was big fun, and uh, yeah, hope to uh, see you, meet you soon, uh, and talk some more.
1: That was be great. All right. Bye, Alex.
2: All right. Bye. bye. Bye.